0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church Midtown. This is our sermon series, Sacred Habits How Practicing the Way of Jesus Helps You to Flourish Spiritually and Stay Grounded Emotionally.
1: Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is Ephesians 2 13 through 22. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God and one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints, and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building, being put together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
0: Good morning, peace be with you. My name is Timothy Paul Jones, and I have the privilege of being one of your preaching pastors here at Sojourn Church Midtown. We are in the midst of a series called Sacred Habits. A couple of weeks ago, Jason Stevens talked about this, and he talked about how what we do habitually, the things we repeat over and over, that shapes our loves and that shapes our lives, and he talked about prayer. And then last week, Jarvis Williams brought a message to us that really challenged me even to love God's Word and to respect and honor God. God's Word more and to make a habit of reading the Scriptures. And this week, I'm going to be talking about sacred fellowship, the habit of gospel-centered fellowship. And I want us to understand something, that there's some things, in fact, a lot of things in life that it's easy to start, but it's difficult to keep going. It's easy to start, difficult to keep going. For example, if you have in your house a piece of exercise equipment with clothes laying over it. Every time you see that, that is a reminder that you made a good start on something, but you didn't continue it. And when I looked it up online, you could make a whole gallery out of all this exercise equipment that's underneath laundry. But what that means is there was a good start, but it was difficult to keep it going. And it's that way with sacred fellowship. It's that way with our relationships and our fellowship in the church. It is really easy to get it started, it is really difficult to turn it into a habit. Because here's the thing. If you start being in relationship with people in the church, you suddenly start running across people who vote differently than you vote. And some people who talk a lot. And some people who have food preferences that are a little strange. Some people who are always in crisis. And sometimes you just forget to have fellowship. And sometimes you're annoyed with the people you have fellowship with. It's easy, easy, easy to start. But it's really hard to keep it going. Fellowship. Easy to start, but difficult to continue. And here's the thing. That didn't just become true in the 21st century. That was true in the first century as well. It's always been the case that it's easy to start fellowship. It is difficult to keep it going. And that's why Paul writes this letter to the church in the city of Ephesus. They had started really, really well in their fellowship But it was not going well when Paul writes this letter. Now, to understand the book of Ephesians, the people of Ephesus, we have to think about some things about the people in Ephesus. The people in Ephesus are people who, in some sense, their lives are separated. The people who lived in the city of Ephesus, second largest city in the Roman Empire at this time, they were people who lived lives that were separated by two different temples. The first of these temples was the temple of Artemis in the city of Ephesus. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. A massive, beautiful, beautiful structure. 121 pillars. It was near the center of the city of Ephesus. There were yearly parades in which people would come to see this temple and have these parades that would celebrate the goddess Artemis. This was central to people's lives in the city of Ephesus. In fact, they they were so passionate about their temple, that about 10 years earlier when Paul had gone to the city of Ephesus and began preaching and some people were being drawn away from this temple, that people got so angry and so concerned about how it was going to affect them financially that there was a riot and Paul had to leave town because of that. So you have people in the city, most of them, their lives were turned toward that temple, toward the temple of Artemis in Ephesus, that's where most of their lives were turned. But there was a significant minority group in the city of Ephesus and they were the Jewish people. Now remember when we talk about the Jews we're talking about the people that God preserved for the purpose of bringing Jesus into the world. That's the people we're talking about and everybody else is Gentiles. So we're talking about Jews and Gentiles that's what we're talking about. Most of us here are Gentiles. No matter what ethnicity you're from you're probably a Gentile unless you have a Jewish heritage and the Jews are the people through whom God brought the Messiah the Gentiles is everybody else. So there was a significant minority Jewish population in the city of Ephesus. But their lives, of course, were turned toward a very different temple their lives were turned toward the temple in Jerusalem. At least once a year at Passover, perhaps more often, they would travel all the way to Jerusalem, many of them, and they would sacrifice in the city of Jerusalem in this beautiful, this temple that Josephus, the historian described, said it was like a mountain of snow trimmed in gold. It was a beautiful temple that Herod the Great had renovated, had begun the renovations of years earlier. And so these are people whose lives are turned toward two different temples. And here's the thing. Jews and Gentiles in their city had as little as possible to do with one another. Because the Gentiles viewed the Jews as being really strange. They worshipped one god instead of many gods. They had no images of their gods. They 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 required their men to be circumcised as part of their religion. And all of this was very strange to the Gentiles. But to the Jews, the Gentiles were unclean. Could even render you unclean to have contact with them. And so we have people in Ephesus whose lives are turned toward two very different temples. And then about 10 years earlier, before this letter was written, Paul shows up. And Paul begins proclaiming a message that is ridiculous and radical the message that Paul begins proclaiming is that these two people groups who are oriented toward different temples, they could actually be one in this man named Jesus. Now, we hear that so often that we don't recognize how radical that was and is in the world. But what they were saying, what Paul was saying to these Jews and Gentiles both is that you can be reconciled to the one God of the universe. You can become in a relationship with him, but the only way you can do that is by trust in Jesus Christ, who took the punishment that you deserved, who was raised again in triumph over sin. And if you trust in him and in his word, you can receive and share in that life that Jesus has. And he says, when you do this, not only does it reconcile you to God, It reconciles you to each other. You can start living in community with one another. This is ridiculous. This is absurd. This is something that was unthinkable in their world. There was no group that would bring these two groups together. And yet suddenly Paul says it can be true. And it was true because people from Jewish and Gentile backgrounds both trusted in Jesus. And they came together and suddenly they're eating at the same tables and having the same fellowship and gathering together to worship the same Christ at the same time. It's radical what has happened to these people. But then, about 10 years later, you see, sacred fellowship is easy to start, but it's difficult to continue. So about 10 years have passed. Some different things have happened. One of the things that has happened is some of the Jews in that, those from the Jewish background in there, they were saying, if you really love Jesus, you really, really ought to follow the Jewish law, the Old Testament law as well, even if you're a Gentile some of the Gentiles recognized that there was a lot of animosity and prejudice toward Jews. And it seems that this may have been pulling up some of that old prejudice, that old animosity toward the Jewish people. And there was conflict and things are not going well at Sojourn Church Ephesus at this time. It's not going well. It's not going well at all. We can almost imagine that in the church at this time, perhaps even you got all the Jews sitting on one side, and all the Gentiles on another, and there's this uneasiness between them. Fellowship, sacred fellowship. It's easy to start, but it is hard to keep it up. And so Paul writes them a letter, and there's three images in this letter that I want us to look at and apply to ourselves today. Here's the first of these three images, because see, you know, I know that things don't ever divide us as Christians today, but we don't ever have that. But it's good for us to be prepared just in case anything were to ever happen that might divide us as Christians, right? We should be prepared for this. So why don't we look at these three images Paul gives them to be able to understand what we do to sustain fellowship when it becomes difficult. The first one of these is you are one body. You're one body or one humanity would be another way of saying this. One body, one man. You are one body. Verse 14, for he is our peace, it says. In his flesh he has made both groups one and broken down the dividing wall of hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace. Humanity has been divided into Gentile and Jew. But in Christ, humanity is restored into one body. And he uses this image that the Jewish people in his audience knew this dividing wall of hostility. Now, this was actually a real wall. There was a real dividing wall of hostility. If you were to have gone at this time to the Jewish temple, there was running through the temple court. There was a low wall. and on that wall was a sign that they had actually discovered. Archaeologists had discovered the sign that was there. And that low wall had the sign that said, if you are a Gentile and you cross through here to the Jewish side of this wall, you die. We will execute you if you do this. You will die if you cross this. This was the dividing wall. It was in the temple. They knew about this. They knew about this. And so Paul uses it as a symbol. He says, you know that dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile? The death of Jesus tore down the hostility between you. It made you one body. It made you one new man. Now, this is about Jews and Gentiles. This isn't about the ethnic divisions we have among us today at times, not about the socioeconomic divisions, not about that. But it has implications for that. Because you see, if if the death of Jesus Christ could tear down a division that had stood for over a thousand years between Jew and Gentile, that same death can also tear down divisions between us today. If it is powerful enough to tear down that division, it can tear down the divisions between us that are racial and economic and political. It can tear down those as well. But you see, let's just be upfront and honest for a bit. We have a natural tendency to want to be around people like us. Have you ever noticed that? We all do. Do you know why we have a tendency to be around people like us and want to be around people like us? It's because we like us. All of us. We like us. And therefore, because we like us, we like people that are like us. That's what we like. That's who we are. But in the body of Christ, we are called to like people that aren't like us. That's one of the central callings of what it means to be part of the body of Christ is to seek out and to love people who aren't necessarily like ourselves. We are big fans of ourselves. But the fact is, is what is we're called to be in the body of Christ is people who love Jesus more than we love ourselves. And because we love Jesus more than we love ourselves, we love those who are in Jesus with us. And those are gonna be people who are different because we are called by Christ to be what we might say is a fellowship of difference, a fellowship of people who are different. We are a body and the different parts of the body in the church, just like in your own body, are different. And every part of the body is needed. Every part is needed. That's why in our body of Christ, when people sin, that's why we want to confront them with that. That's why we want to call them back when they sin. The reason is, is because we think they matter. It's not to punish people. It's not for us to anyway, try to say, as, as, act as if some of us are better than others. We chase people down and we confront people who are in sin because we love them, because we care about them, because we really believe that the body needs them. That's why we do that. And no part of the body functions in isolation from the rest. You need the rest of the body. C.S. Lewis spoke these words when he reflected back on his early life as a Christian, and I think they're, they're just so wise to hear this. He says, when I first became a Christian about 14 years ago, I thought I could do it on my own. By retiring to my own rooms and reading theology, I wouldn't go to church. I disliked very much the hymns, But as I went on, I saw the great merit of it. I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and different education. Then gradually, my conceit just began peeling off. I realized these hymns were being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic side boots in the opposite pew. And then you realize you aren't even fit to clean those boots. And it gets you out of your solitary conceit. We need to get out of our solitary conceit of thinking I can do it by myself. I can do it on my own. You need the body of Christ to be what God created you to be. We need one another. Second image that Paul draws from here is an image of family. Look at verse 19. He says, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but now you are citizens with the saints. And also, he says, members of the household of God, members of God's household. When you become part of the body of Christ, we become brothers and sisters. We say that so often, we don't even think about it sometimes. We don't think about how radical this is. But I want us to recognize that to be brothers and sisters, to be a family, to say that we are a family, that is a radical thing to claim. And it's something that the world around us, I think, is hungry for, is to see people who live as a family. Here's one thing that I think proves it, Encanto. Has anybody watched Encanto? Encanto. Okay, it's a great movie. Okay, now don't get your faith or spirituality from it. But if you're getting your faith and spirituality from Disney movies, you were in trouble all the way back at Snow White. So I'm not worried about that. It's a good movie, great movie. And so in this particular movie, in Encanto, you have this, this, lots of great songs. Like, like, we don't talk about Bruno, no. no. That's, that's, our house has been doing that for several days. So, but, but it's got great songs, all this. But here's the underlying storyline in this movie. The underlying storyline has to do with that every member of the family, even those who seem like their gifts are not as great as others, is needed, and they are all part of the family, and they're all needed. And no matter, even if their their gifts don't seem as great as others, even if it's something like they don't have gifts at all, they're important, and they're needed, and the family needs them to be what it ought to be. People watch this, and they eat this up. Why? Because they want it. We all want that. We would all love to feel like I am part of a group, I'm part of a community where I really contribute something, I am needed, and people value me, and I am part of a family that's even bigger than my earthly family. We all desperately want that. We all want it. But this family isn't formed by biology. This family is formed by adoption. And adoption by its very nature takes people that the world would never dream of putting together and puts them together into one family. That's what adoption does. It takes the people that the world would never dream of putting together and puts them together into one family. And when the world sees that, the world gets confused. (laughs) What on earth? How on earth do people that are so different end up in the same family? I can say that as our our family— when we, every time we try to go through airport security, everybody gets confused. <laughs> like everybody does. They don't know who goes with who and what child. They're looking for parents that aren't there. And they, they get all confused every time we try to go through airport security. Why? Because our family doesn't look like what they want. They're expecting a family to look like. It just doesn't. And in the church, when they look at us, it ought to be the same way. <laughs> Like how on earth is he feel working? How do you all fit together? I don't know. I don't understand this. How your family fits together as a church? That's what we want it to be. We want them to be. Whoa! How did this happen? How did people that are so different come together in this body? And that's what we're saying in this. That's what we're saying when we say it's a family. We're also saying when we say we're brothers and sisters that all the human hierarchies. From outside, they have no meaning here. We are equal. We are equal in the body of Christ. All those human hierarchies and values that rank you on the outside, they have no place here. That's why there should be no hint. There must be no hint of social superiority or racial supremacy in the body of Christ. It's not part of who we can be if we're faithful to Christ. And Christians did this from the very beginning. From the earliest stages of the Christian faith, we find that they treated one another's brothers and sisters as equals in ways that mystified the world around them. There's a guy named Celsus in the second century, a pagan philosopher, and he mocked Christians, wrote a whole treatise, much of it, mocking Christians. And one of the main things he mocked Christians about was that they welcome, in his words, slaves and women and children as equals. (laughs) Yeah, he's right we welcome one another as brothers and sisters no matter our social status in the world around us i think one of the most beautiful examples is this in the early 3rd century ad when in north africa there were two different individuals two women who were arrested for their faith perpetua and felicitas perpetua was a noblewoman very wealthy felicitas was a slave they were brought in, and Perpetua was pregnant at the time. They let her deliver her child, and two days later, they took the two of them out to be killed for their faith. And they so said they embraced one another, hugged one another, and they died together with one another, a noble woman and a slave as equals. That's what the Christian faith Can do. That's what the Christian faith has done throughout history. And what that means practically for us today is you can have in the body of Christ somebody making minimum wage who's discipling a multimillionaire because they are equal in the body of Christ. And in Christ, both of them are royalty. the minimum wage worker and the millionaire are both royalty and they will reign forever for the next trillion years. And the trillion years after that, they will reign together as equals because of who Christ is. Because it's not a matter of who we are, but of who Jesus is and who we are in him. To be a Christian is to see every other Christian as your family, as your brother, your sister, and this changes everything. Because what joins us together is not politics or culture, but Christ. Christ. At a very practical level, it means if you're a Christian, you have more in common with the Dalit Christian in India on the other side of the world than you have with someone who has the same ethnicity, same politics as you, who works the same level of job that you do, but who isn't a Christian. You have more in common with them, with the person on the other side of the world who's a Christian because you have Christ in common with them. You have Christ in common. But not only are we a family, and not only are we a body, we are a living temple that will last forever. Look at verses 21 and 22. It says, In him the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place, For God, you're being built up as a temple. Now, in their world, a temple was the place where you encountered the gods. And so, when it describes us as a temple, one of the implications of that is we as a people, not as a building, not as a structure, but we as a people in Christ, we are where people encounter God. That's who we are. We are the place as a people where God is encountered. No temple ever before had ever brought together Jews and Gentiles. Do you realize that? There was no temple in all of history at this point that had ever brought together Jews and Gentiles, but that's exactly what Paul is describing. And Paul gets excited. You can, as you move into chapter 3, I want you to notice something where Paul gets really, really excited. Chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. He says this, and then he kind of gets really excited and goes off on this kind of squirrel moment in which he talks about. It. It's a it's a spirit-inspired squirrel moment, but a squirrel moment nonetheless. He goes off on this squirrel moment where he gets all excited, and, and he's breathless in the way he writes this about the mystery of how God had planned for all eternity. To bring Jews and Gentiles together, and he doesn't get back and finish what he started in verse 14, where he says, For this reason, and then he said, I fall to my knees or I bow my knees before the Father. And I just fall, to, it's in such awe of what God has done by bringing Jews and Gentiles together that it just causes me to fall down. On my knees before the Father, verse 15, from whom every family in heaven on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you be strengthened within your inner being with power through the Holy Spirit, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you're being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend. And here he goes back to temple language. With all the saints, what is the breadth and length And height and depth. He's describing this as in dimensions here. He's saying, I want you to be this amazing temple, and I may I pray you may understand just how amazing the dimensions of this human temple, this living temple are that brings together people from every ethnicity and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He is excited about this. He thinks this is beautiful. And we sometimes forget how awe-inspiring it is to be part of a community that draws people together this way. And he goes on then in verse 20. And he gives this benediction. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than we could ask or imagine. Because look what he's done. He's brought together all these different people from different places. It's so much more than we could ever have imagined. Verse 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And notice something he says here that's easy for us to brush over. He says the church, this temple that God is building in human flesh and bone and spirit, the church, he says, will last forever. This temple, this living temple, will last forever. Do you realize how ridiculous that was to say in his day? One one-hundredth of one percent, a slightly less than one one-hundredth of one percent probably of the Roman Empire at this time was Christian. There was very few Christians. They had no buildings. They were under persecution. Persecution was about to get worse. This church, this temple that God is building in humanity, there's no way it's going to last how could it possibly last? And yet pulses confidently, it's going to last forever. It will last forever and ever. That a temple of Artemis, man, that's something that's going to last. I mean, that's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Big. This, man, there's no way that's going away. Temple in Jerusalem, that's a temple that's going to last. This temple, that might make it a few more years. Well, let's think about what history has demonstrated. Let's take a look at the temple in Ephesus today. One pillar remains. One. One pillar. If you look at the temple in Jerusalem, it's even worse than that. Nothing remains outside of one retaining wall on the western side of the temple mount. Nothing else has lasted. But what about the temple that Paul describes here? This temple that we are? Well, look to your left. Like, really, look to your left. Look to your right. And then think about that right now, around the world, there are millions upon millions upon millions of people that are gathering in the name of Jesus Christ this day, right now. The temple has lasted. Paul was right. The temple of Artemis is gone. The temple in Jerusalem has gone. You're still here. You're still here. That is the power and the beauty of this sacred fellowship that brought Paul to his knees. You're still here. So what do we do with this? We've got these images. We need to move from these images to habits. How do we live out our identity as a body, as a family, as a temple? How do we live that out in the form of habits? Well, one of the ways is, community groups restore i want to encourage you to get to jump into authentic community in our church one of the ways to do that is community groups and restore you can look up things like on that how to do that at the end of the service they'll be telling you some ways you can get into community groups but i want to look at three specific things two of them are habits and one of them is an attitude to help us live this out here's the first one pass the peace every day pass the peace every day. Now I want to talk a little bit about passing the peace. did this earlier in the service. We do this every Sunday. And, and it got a little difficult after COVID. I mean, and it still is because before COVID, we kind of knew one another, what each person was comfortable with. And we know that some people, you shake their hand. Some people, you hug them. Some people, thumbs up, lean in, all those things like that. We kind of had that down. Then COVID happens. And like, we don't know whether somebody's fist bumping, whether they are waving, whether they're just Wakanda forever, whatever. We just don't know what everybody's doing, okay? But here's what I want to encourage you to do. That's going to still be a little difficult for a while, okay? It is, it is. But I want to encourage you to do something each week. And this is this. I want to encourage you to say the words, peace be with you and respond and also with you. Just start doing that with each person. And every time you say that, Remind yourself, this person is my family. This person's my family. And if you're not sure if they're a believer or not yet, then say this, this person in Christ could be my family. Say to one another, peace be with you and also with you. Because this has a powerful meaning in the history of the church. I don't know if you realize this. This is not something that Sojourn came up with a few years ago, okay? This is something that Christians have done for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And what would happen in the early church was this. You would say, peace be with you, and you would kiss one another, and then the other person would respond, and also with you. That was, a, and when they kissed one another, that was a sign within their cultural context that you were equals. You were rejecting the hierarchies of the world outside and saying, we have a different set of standards here. We are equals. We are family. It was a way of constructing, we might say, their family by kissing one another and saying that. Now, some of you are like, oh my goodness, he's totally going to make us kiss each other. Some of you actually feel kind of eager about that. I'm not sure. Anyway, we'll, we'll just leave that. But, uh, but no, no, I'm really not. I'm not going to make you kiss one another, okay? I'm really not going to do that. But I am going to say that let's capture that meaning, even if we don't do the motion, okay? Of saying, peace be with you and also with you, And understand that this is an indication that we are brothers, sisters, equals. And then do this. As I said, pass the peace every day. Here's what I'd like you to try to do. Just try to do it for this week. This week, every day, somebody in our church, pass the peace to them. Might be that you text somebody and say, hey, how did your job interview go? Peace be with you. They respond how it went and also with you. Do that every day this week with somebody in our church. Pass the peace. Pass the peace. And when you do it, and when you respond to it, remember, we are family. That's a habit that you can get into that over time shapes your loves, which in time shapes your soul and the way you perceive one another. So pass the peace every day. Second one is this. Pray for diverse fellowship and then pursue it. Pray for diverse fellowship and then pursue it. That order is given to you in a very, for a reason. Pray for it, then pursue it. You see, one of our core values as a church is diverse fellowship. You'll find that in things that we write, everything like that. Diverse fellowship is one of the things that is very important to us. And the reason it's important to us is not because we came up with it. It's because Jesus was doing it a long time before we were. You see, God was doing this throughout all eternity, fellowship, and the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in fellowship with one another. Jesus, this was a habit in his life. Look at the life of Jesus. Pay attention to this, the habit of diverse fellowship. He starts out with 12 men who are a lot like himself, 12 Jewish men. But then what does Jesus do? He starts calling women as his disciples. He starts calling Samaritans who were despised in their culture. He starts calling them as his disciples. He starts healing people who are lepers, who are outcasts in their society. He starts healing people even who are Gentiles and reaching out to them. And all the way through his ministry, he's multiplying this circle of diverse fellowship And he's pursuing it. And in the end, his last commission to his disciples, he says, go into all the nations. Go into all the peoples of the world and make disciples. It was a habit of Jesus's life a long time before it was a habit in our life. So here's what I want to encourage you to do. Pray for diverse fellowship and then pursue it. Here's what I don't want you to do. And it's why I say to pray for it first. Don't look at your life and say, oh, I need to have a friendship with this person over here, this type of person. People are not trading cards you collect, okay? I need a person from this ethnicity, this socioeconomic background. that's, That's not, that's demeaning to people. It expects them to be the representative of their ethnicity or their socioeconomic status. It reduces them to tokens. It's not the way we want to live. And the world's diversity often does that. But that's not what we want in the body of Christ. I want us to pray passionately, that God would bring diverse fellowship into our lives. And then when somebody crosses your path, then pursue it with all your heart. And in some cases, it may be somebody of a different ethnicity than you, okay? But it also may be somebody from a different socioeconomic demographic. Maybe that you're married and somebody who's single, and you kind of don't have a lot of engagement with people who are single. Maybe the other way around. It may be somebody who comes from a different political perspective than you. pursue diverse fellowship, but pray for it before you pursue it. Because when we pursue it in our own power, we just do dumb things. Pray for it first, and then pursue with all your heart. Pray for God's guidance in this. God, bring people into my life that will show me my blind spots and my prejudices that I don't even know about, God, correct me, bring people into my life who will correct me. Because there's not a one of us that somehow has no part of our lives that doesn't look down on somebody. It may be on the economic scale, it may be on all sorts of different ways, but every one of us. And there's often it's in places we don't even know. And the only way that comes out is as God brings people along our path that causes us to live in fellowship with somebody who's different from us and we start to feel that and we realize, oh my goodness, there was something in my soul that I didn't even know was there and God's getting it out through this. You need diverse fellowship, but you don't know what you need sometimes in that diverse fellowship, but God does. Pray for it and then pursue it. Pray for it. Just for me to be who God created me to be, I need people who are not like me. And so do you. We all do. Every single one of us. I love what Christian hip-hop artist Shai Lin, he says it in his book, The New Reformation. He says, The Christian who says we means something entirely different post-conversion than she did when she said it before. In Christ... There is a new we that supersedes every previous group. And this new we is diverse. This new we is black and white, male and female. It's youthful and elderly, Republican and Democrat, metropolitan and rural. It's scholarly and lacks formal education. It's blue-collar and white-collar. It's upper-class and lower-class. It's multinational. It's multilingual. It's multicolored. It's blood-bought. And it's glorious. That's what we want for our church. That's what we want for our church, is to be that kind of people. Pray for diverse fellowship, and then pursue it. The last thing is not a habit. Those two are habits, but the last one's an attitude. It's simply this. Prepare to lay down your life. Just understand that to pursue this kind of fellowship is going to be costly. It will cost you. Don't think that I can just pursue this kind of fellowship and still be the person I was before. It will change you and it will cost you. There are times when you have to lay down what you would prefer for the sake of somebody else. Be prepared to lay down your life. One of our mottos in our church is to fill our city with gritty disciple makers. And this is where it gets gritty. It's really hard to live in diverse fellowship with other people. It's really difficult. But remember, we are a temple, and a temple is a place where sacrifices happen. And if we are to be the people of God and be a temple, this has got to be a place where we make sacrifices for one another. Means My way is not always going to be the way. There are going to be times I need to listen to others and to seek their counsel that are different perspectives than mine, and I have to lay down what I would prefer for the sake of others. But also know this. The world around us is hungry to see a community of people that lays down their life for one another. The world would love to see that because they don't see that in their workplace. They don't see that in their family, but they can see it here. I was reading an interview recently with the director of the Avengers and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He's an atheist, and someone asked him about how this played into the stories he writes. Here's what he said. He said, I have no hope. My stories do have hope. If I wrote what I really think, I would be so sad all the time. So I write things where people lay down their lives for each other. I don't see that in the world, so I create it. He wants to see a place where people lay down their lives. So he creates it in fiction because he doesn't think it happens in real life. But we can be that place where people lay down their lives for one another. We are that place. We are that people. Be that people. That's what it means to live as a sacred fellowship. Let's pray.